glad to get the opportunity to preach the word this morning. Today we're going to be exploring Mark 1, 16 through 20. I'm sure we've all had times in our lives where we've gotten a call or found something out and then dropped what we were doing and went to tend to whatever needed our attention. One such instance for me was when my family got the call that my grandpa wasn't doing well and they thought that he only had a couple days left. So we packed up that night and drove 10 hours early the next morning to spend time with grandpa before he went home to be with the Lord. This was an easy decision for us. There was no doubt about what we were going to do. But why was that? Because we cared deeply about Grandpa, and by the nature of our relationship to him, he had a claim on us and our time because of the love that we had for each other. But what about a situation where we are called to drop everything? Where you called to leave your career for an uncertain future? Where you called away from home with no safe place to land? Where the person calling is someone that you barely know? Is that a call that you would follow? Unless you're the super adventurous type, I would venture a guess that most of us would prefer the safety, comfort, and familiarity of the known over the unknown. However, as we are about to see, Jesus calls us to drop everything and follow him. The Gospel of Mark is a fast-paced account about Jesus' life as he heads to the cross. It both tells us who Jesus is and invites us to follow him as we see for ourselves what he is calling us to. We are given the opportunity to test the claim of Jesus being the Son of God as we decide for ourselves if this Jesus is worth following and if we are willing to deny ourselves and take up our crosses as we answer the sovereign, authoritative call of God. Our passage today, Mark 1, 16 through 20, is actually the first event of Jesus' public ministry. Before this, we have seen Jesus seen that Jesus is God himself, come to proclaim the message found in verse 15, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Here, Jesus is laying down God's claim on the lives of his people and calling them to return to him. That brings us to our passage. Let's read it. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world to call us into relationship with yourself and calling us to worship you this morning. I pray that we would be reminded of how astounding it is that you would offer us mercy and that you would call us into your service. Refresh our hearts and minds as we encounter you and your word. Convict us where we have fallen short and fill us with the thankfulness as we explore our glorious Christian calling. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hopefully, you are able to see the radical nature of the calling of the disciples. This is a call that is actually extended to all of us as Mark guides us through the life of Jesus. So what are the questions that we need to ask and answer as we decide whether or not to follow Jesus' radical call? I believe there are three basic questions. One, who is Jesus? Two, what are we being called to? 
And three, is this worth it? The first question is, what is it about Jesus that would lead four men to get up and just leave? We don't get a lot of detail about Jesus in this passage, but we do notice a couple of things. That Jesus, one, comes to them and calls them specifically, and two, that Jesus has the authority to do so. One of the more significant things about this passage is that this is not how a teacher would have typically gotten disciples in the Jewish rabbinical system. Typically, the student would initiate the relationship as they recognize the worthiness of the teacher. This would be like a graduating high school student aspiring to go to Harvard or Yale or some other Ivy League school in a quest to have the best education. But what Jesus does here is actually the opposite. Jesus seeks them out, and he doesn't look for their qualifications. He doesn't look at their applications. Rather, he simply chooses them and calls them. This is normal for the ministry of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to us, fulfilling the Old Testament promise that God will come and restore his people. It is important to remember that God takes the initiative with us. We are dependent on God to give us life. The striking thing about this is that we don't meet the admittance requirements for the school of Christ. We should have never got the letter of acceptance, yet here it is. Take a second to realize what this really means. It would be like getting accepted into Harvard after dropping out of high school after your freshman year. Your sin has disqualified you, yet Jesus, the Son of God, calls you to be his. The disciples realize this. In Luke's version of the account, we see Simon fall down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. It is after Simon realizes his inadequacy that Jesus then issues the call to discipleship. This is divine grace on full display. The disciples understand that they do not live up to the standard that God has set, yet Jesus has the authority to extend grace to the disciples. This is important to keep in mind as following Jesus has its start and foundation in the grace of God, not our ability to choose him. Also, note that the authority of Jesus that he uses in forgiving sins is the same authority that calls us to follow him. Jesus, as God, has the authority to place an absolute claim on the lives of men. But this isn't just any type of authority. This authority is implicit in Jesus' character. We know this because the disciples hardly knew Jesus when he called and they followed. So what exactly was it about Jesus that drew the disciples to him? What makes Jesus' claim on their lives, as one commentator put it, so compelling that all prior claims lose their validity? The first clue as to what is so compelling about Jesus is who he is claiming to be. He is claiming that he is the Lord God in the flesh. Mark makes this same claim by opening the gospel as the gospel of, saying it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But what does this actually mean? How does that give Jesus the authority to call these men from their work and from their families? Jesus, as God, is the creator and sustainer of the world. All things are his. Paul gets at this in Colossians saying that for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see that God rightfully has total claim on the lives of men as they are creatures who are wholly dependent on God for all things. This is much like having the title to your car. 
when you have the title, you own your car, and no matter what happens, even if stolen, it is still yours by right, and you can claim it when it is found. But with God, though we are rightfully His, He does not treat us as mere property. He seeks us out and calls us back to life with Him, which we have rejected in prideful rebellion. Jesus' call then exhibits both grace and authority. But can we trust that Jesus is really extending grace? That he really is who he says he is? It is clear that Jesus is trustworthy. We see this in the responses of both sets of brothers. There are no arguments, no questions, just the immediate faithful response to Jesus that takes an immense amount of trust. They had to trust that they would be able to sustain themselves after leaving family and career. They had to trust that Jesus was not just wasting their time, leading them on and destroying their lives. They had to have faith that Jesus was who he said he was. They had to have believed the gospel that Jesus preached. They had to believe that Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God. They were resting their well-being, their lives, on Jesus. And the only reason why had to be the certainty of faith. I'm sure a lot of us have had the experience of not wanting to jump into the pool for the first time as a child. And often you'll have your parents standing in the water trying to get you to jump in and they're ready to catch you. And the only reason that you're actually able to overcome your fear and jump into the pool is that your parent is there to catch you. But what is the reasoning behind your jump? Simply because someone that has your best interest in mind is calling you to jump into the water. You have a person in authority who is trustworthy leading to an act of faith. We see Jesus as a trustworthy authority calling us to follow him. Will you jump? But what are we jumping into? What does the call to discipleship entail? Jesus' call to the disciples in verse 17 is, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. This call has two parts and we look at them in order. First, we will seek to understand why Jesus calls us to follow him. And then we will discover what it means to become a fisher of men. The first part of the call to discipleship is to follow Jesus. And while that might seem like a common concept to us in the 21st century, this would have actually been quite the profound thing in the first century. Typically, a relationship with God was described as, not described as following, rather it was focused on walking before or obeying God. One commentator draws out this contrast well, saying that the Old Testament, the call was to walk in God's ways and according to his statutes, but Jesus calls the four to himself. This makes a huge difference, and it shapes the way that we view our discipleship. We are not called to merely follow rules, but we are called to follow a person who happens to be God himself, which means that discipleship is about relationship. It's about knowing and loving God. One commentator put it this way, only as Jesus is followed can he be known. Only as Jesus is followed can he be known. This is really important. It means that our relationship with the Lord cannot be reduced to technique. Activities such as reading your Bible every day, fasting, praying, and giving to the church do not automatically mean that we know Jesus well. All of those things, while extremely good things, can be done in a way that does not actually open oneself up to engage with the Lord. You can keep God's at an arm's length doing any of these things. You can read a passage of scripture and twist it to justify your sinful actions and attitudes. 
You can serve someone while being bitter in heart. You can give generously to the church out of guilt or a desire to be known as generous. You can make a big deal out of asking to pray for, pray for someone, yet do so out of pride. Our external actions can appear to be in line with the gospel, while our heart's motivations can be greatly disordered. When we are called to follow the person of Jesus, rather than do this or do that, we are called to change at a heart level. If you have a Ferrari with a Ford Focus engine, it still looks like a Ferrari, but it most definitely does not drive like one. And when you try to race your friend who has a genuine Ferrari, well, let's just say it won't be close. Why? Because it's what's under the hood or in the heart that counts. Looks are ultimately meaningless. External actions and obedience to the law never give you the full picture. So, if knowing Jesus means more than just doing things that good Christians do, how do we know Jesus? The simple answer is that we take up his call and follow him. Then, as we enjoy communion with him, we are transformed into his image. Jesus is inviting his disciples into a community that will go where he goes, that spends time with him in the ordinary, everyday aspects of life, that witnesses his miracles and teachings, that sees the way that he loves the tax collector and sinner, and how our Lord calls out the injustice done by the religious leaders of the day. All of this will happen as they walk with Jesus as he marches to the cross, the cross where Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many, the cross where our sins are paid for. And with this call comes a promise. As we follow Jesus and know him, we will become fishers of men. Which brings us to the second part of the call to discipleship. If the first part of the call tells us what we are to do, the second part tells us what we are to become. And that is to become fishers of men. The first thing that Jesus would like us to notice is that this is a promise. In verse 17, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And I'd like to highlight the words, I will make you become. This is significant because we see that the formational aspect of following Jesus rests not on us, though we are responsible to take up the call, but on Jesus, who can mold and shape us into his image. This is a guarantee. Just like a caterpillar that makes its cocoon and comes out a butterfly, so does the disciple take up the call to follow Jesus and comes out on the other side as a fisher of men. When we encounter Jesus, we will inevitably be changed. However, just as it takes time for a caterpillar to metamorphosize, it will take time for the disciples to become fishers of men. They will fail. They will not understand. And they will even deny Jesus. Yet by the grace of God, they will carry out their task to become fishers of men. But what exactly is a fisher of men? The concept of Simon, Andrew, James, and John becoming fishers of men is more than just a play on their vocations. The concept actually has rich Old Testament significance. Typically it is God who is the fisher of men. The prime example of this is Jeremiah 16 where God is exercising divine judgment on rebellious people, emphasizing how they will not be able to escape without payment for their sins. And this is very much in line with what has been happening in Mark so far. John the Baptist announces the coming of the Lord himself, who confronts his people with the absolute claim of God on their lives. In this, people are presented with two options, repent or face judgment. And this decision is focused on the person of Jesus. Will we repent and take up the call to follow him, or will we reject him 
leaving ourselves open to the wrath of God. The role of the disciple is to be that of a witness to Jesus and his call to repentance. The disciples, being called to experience the mercy and grace of God, are then transformed and sent out as representatives of God to preach the very gospel that Jesus proclaimed. They are given the opportunity to witness the judgment and mercy of God as they extend Jesus' call to repentance in hopes of gathering a people for God. This is absolutely necessary because Jesus is the focal point of history. Your response to Jesus is the most important thing about you. And as sinners who have rejected God's claim on our lives, we are graciously extended a way to escape judgment, as it is only in Jesus that sins are forgiven. One practical application of this is the very simple question of, how do you respond to Jesus? You have two options before you, and you are given the chance to decide. Will you follow Jesus and witness to the reality of God's judgment and forgiveness offered by Jesus? Or will you reject all notion of an outside authority on your life and face the consequences of that? This is a choice that all of us have to make. So what do you believe about Jesus? Another point of application for those of us who have taken up the call to follow Jesus is that this call to become fishers of men is extended to us as well. How are you witnessing to the absolute claim of God on your life? Are you testifying to the reality of God to those around you? Are you seeking to love your neighbor as yourself? To invite them to the forgiveness in life that is found in following Jesus? Evangelism is something that can seem daunting, but it is essential to following Jesus. Our faith is not to be self-centered. It's not about me and my salvation. Rather, we are called into a community. You notice that there were four disciples called here, and eventually there would be 12. We see that both following Jesus and evangelism are inherently outward focused towards your neighbor. Lone wolves ought to be completely unheard of in the Christian community. We are made to be known and loved, and in turn, know and love others. This community that Jesus starts in our passage is eventually commissioned to share the gospel in Jerusalem all of Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Likewise, we are called to testify in word and deed to the reality of God's judgment and mercy to those around us, to all people. This is a high calling of which we are only able to participate by grace and are only sufficient because our Savior is sufficient. Witnessing to the gospel is something that should bring us joy in life as we follow Jesus. Paul gets at this in 2 Corinthians 2, saying, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. If we are called to follow and become witnesses to the gospel, we have to ask ourselves what it will cost us to do this. This brings us to my last point. Those who encounter Jesus are often confronted by the costs associated with following Jesus. What are those costs? Following Jesus means that you are called to surrender your life to God, to lay aside your plans and dreams and desires at the foot of the cross, and to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. In our passage today, we see the disciples immediately leave their careers and their family to go with Jesus. Let's take some time to perform what those in business call a cost-benefit analysis. 
The first cost we see in our passage is that of Simon and Andrew's careers. They left their nets and followed Jesus. And it's not like one of the situations where they're barely scraping by and they're already looking for something else to do. The fishing industry in Galilee was well known and odds are that Simon and Andrew would have been quite successful businessmen. Yet they got out of the boat and walked away. That seems crazy. Yet they found Jesus to be worth it. Now, what this is not saying is that you need to quit your job and pursue full-time vocational ministry. Jesus is not saying that work is worthless. Rather, he is re-ranking work on our priority scale, calling us to examine what we are working for. Jesus' call to follow him and be made into fishers of men is to show how much greater of a calling we have in him. As agents of God's kingdom in the world, our first job is to walk with Jesus, period. Your first job is to walk with Jesus. And when this is our primary calling, your career becomes the arena where you are called to follow Jesus in every area of your life. You are uniquely situated to reach the people around you. You are uniquely situated to see how the gospel shapes the way that you do your work day in and day out. And you are called to faithfully live out your primary calling to follow Jesus and witness to him in all of your other callings, such as your career, and as we will see momentarily, your family. The call to follow Jesus is meant to permeate your entire life. Like when you dump food coloring in a glass of water and it disperses and turns the whole glass that color. The good news that Jesus has called you into his kingdom and into a relationship with himself and is making you a new creature is to permeate the way that you do all things to the glory of God. Why does this matter? Because that means that when Jesus is your primary calling, when he is your priority, there are no meaningless things, no insignificant tasks. Your work has a significance that cannot be explained merely by what you do. Rather, it is significant in the eyes of God. Yet this can only happen when our work, our careers, or our studies are not our primary callings in life. When they are, they are idols that demand more and more out of us until there's nothing else but work and toil. Jesus calls us out of that to something greater. If work is not to be the primary calling of a disciple, the same is true for family. Simon and Andrew left their nets, yet James and John left their father. They are not crazy. They see that Jesus is worth it, and their actions speak for themselves. But why would Jesus call us away from our family? That seems too great of a price to pay. But there's more to this than meets the eye. Jesus is not telling you to abandon your family and follow him. Rather, he is again getting at the order or priority of our callings. Jesus also is not saying that family is not good. Rather, he's inviting us into a new family, the covenant people of God. And this family is oriented by the call to follow Jesus. It is meant to bring glory to God and to be the bride of Christ. This does not cut our current family ties, but rather extends them past that of our biological families. The life of this new family is to be one that is characterized by its following of Jesus and its mission to the world. So what are we to do with this? It means that we are to give up family as our primary calling. Family, while a good and valuable gift, makes a poor God. One that will not satisfy no matter how good your family might be. Why? 
because sin is the thing that distorts and perverts good things. And until sin has been completely eradicated, there will be no perfect family. Only God is perfect. And when we see it as our primary calling to follow Jesus and become fishers of men, we will be transformed more into the kind of people who make family life so good. And this is another occasion where what at first seems like a loss turns out to be a great gain. So what is the final analysis? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Later on in Mark, Simon, then referred to as Peter, asked Jesus this very question. This is after the rich young ruler has walked away from Jesus' call. He's unwilling to sell all that he had, and money and the comfort that it brought were more valuable than life and communion with Jesus. Money and temporary comfort were more important than eternal life. And Peter eventually responds to this, saying, See, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus' reply is reassuring to all who take up his call, to all who follow him. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the beauty of the call to follow Jesus. When it seems that we have left the best things the world has to offer behind, we find that the Lord gives us more than we could ever dream. He's not promised us bliss in this life, as he says that there will be persecutions. This is no prosperity gospel. But Jesus does make it clear that following him is worth it, promising that we will receive a hundredfold now in this time of what we gave up. Jesus has graciously and authoritatively called us into his kingdom to become a community of people who witnesses to the truth of the gospel. This is the call that has been issued to generations of disciples. So then how are we to obey this call now? I have two starting points. One, spend time communing with God. Listen to him speak in the scriptures. You can start anywhere. It is the same God throughout. Then ask yourself questions like, who is God? What has he done? How does that shape my affections, my motivations, my actions? Allow the scriptures to examine you, ask you questions that make you want to squirm. See how the gospel calls you to obey while also removing the fear of failure as you see that God wants you, not a list of good deeds. Then respond in prayer, praising, thanking, confessing, interceding on behalf of others. In this, you'll learn to depend on the Lord for all things. Second, find someone who's following Jesus and follow them. Let them show you how to follow the Lord. We are not left on our own to figure out how to follow Jesus. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, find someone in this congregation who is faithfully walking with the Lord and get to know them. Do life with them. See how they're being shaped and formed by the good news of the gospel and then do likewise. This goes both ways though. For those of you who have been following Jesus for years, follow Jesus as you invite a younger brother or sister into your life. Share with them all that you have learned, all the times that God has been faithful to you. Show them how you love your neighbor, how you serve your spouse, how you share the gospel, and remind them of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
and you will likely find that both of you come out of the other side with a father or mother or son or daughter in the faith. And you will find that the time invested in these relationships is time well spent. Now go, follow Jesus. He has called you all to follow him, to witness to the grace and to the judgment of God, and to do so together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have created us and have provided richly. You have sustained our lives, yet we have refused to recognize your call. Yet by your grace, you have sought us out and called us your own. You have invited us to follow your Son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of your nature and to be made like him. You have also called us to witness to your grace and to your judgment. Give us boldness and confidence as we proclaim the gospel in word and deed to those around us. Remind us of the community you have called us into and deepen our unity. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.